morning, everyone. Um, my name is Matt. If you didn't know that already, and it's really nice to meet you, and if you're here for the first time, you're incredibly welcome. Um, we're in the middle of, I in the middle of, we're drawing to the end of a teaching series on the book of Ephesians. Um, this is a penultimate talk. Next week, we'll be finishing it. And, and what I want to do is to zoom out and remind ourselves of the big message of Ephesians, the, the if you like, the meta uh, story. Um, the word to us through the letter that runs like a motif, like a, like a grain throughout the letter. I want to just zoom out and remind ourselves of the big message of Ephesians, and then I want to zoom in on Ephesians chapter 5, which uh, Lewis just so beautifully read. So let's zoom out, and here's the big message of Ephesians, that in Jesus Christ, all things are unified. That's all things. I need that clicky thing. It's all good. That was going so well, so smooth. There's always something that throws me. It's not even funny anymore. Just need to get on top of this. I should maybe just give myself half an hour in the church one day with the clicky thing and just get on with it. But now it's not. There we go. It's going to skip ahead. There we go. Amazing. Um, In chapter 1, verse 10, uh, we're told that the universe, everything in heaven and earth, by the way, if you have a Bible, feel free to flick. If you don't, feel free to have a look at your phone, but resist the temptation to look at BBC News, BBC Sport. I know there's lots on at the moment. Don't do that. Uh, You're a terrible person if you do. No, I'm joking. You you aren't. You are forgiven and there's grace in this place. Uh, But if you flick with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says that the universe, hear this, the universe, not just the earth, all of reality, everything in heaven and earth is being brought into a unity in Christ. The Greek word for unity is anakephalo, is a compound word, ana meaning up and kephalo meaning head. In other words, Jesus is the person in whom all things are being summed up and Jesus is the one in whom all things are being brought to a head. Isn't that incredible? And so it's good news. If we go back to the beginning in Genesis 1, uh, we're told that there is unity at the beginning of the story. That God and humanity and humanity and all creation are unified. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you'll read that God walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. They are literally uh, bound together in a common spirit, in a common friendship, in a commonality and unity. They're not the same thing. God is God and creation is creation. Let's not fall into that trap. But there is a deep and profound unity. What happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve decide that they can run the universe and their lives and all things better than God can can they take their hands out of God's hand and they say thank you very much we'll take it from here and what follows from that is disunity all of creation is shattered into fragments where we get tribalism nations individualism uh, follows from that place but here's the amazing news of Ephesians that Paul is trying to communicate that God takes a man Abraham and through him a nation Israel and through Israel Jesus is born in whom all things are being reunited, recreated, restored, might just say mended, healed, brought together once again. It's an extraordinary and profound mystery. I took a photo of that slide and I don't think it's going to be very helpful. So we'll, we'll skip that one. The point is that Jesus is drawing all things together. The clicky thing's got a, a slightly unnerving delay. So I don't know where we're going to land up. There we are. No, I don't want that one. I'm sorry. This might not work, but we've got a few slides to go. Just give me a moment. Now we've skipped really, really far ahead. 
Oh, can you? Amazing. Can I get the next slide, Mark? Everyone just give Mark a round of applause for blessing him. I bless you, Mark. Thank you. Jesus is bringing all things together. He is unifying all things. This was good news then, and it's good news now. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville was a French politician in the mid-1800s who was sent on behalf of the French government to America, and he wrote down a few of his thoughts, and here's a quote which I thought was quite fun. He said, The first thing about America that strikes observation is an innumerable multitude of men and women, all equal and alike, incessantly endeavouring to obtain the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut their lives. Each of them living apart is as a stranger to the fate of the rest. His children and his private friends constitute to him the whole of mankind. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, he touches them, but he doesn't feel them. What an interesting observation on the birth of America, the great American democracy, that though everyone seems to be present to each other, they're all set about building their own mini empires, their mini kingdoms. They, they touch each other's lives, but they don't necessarily enter into them. I thought it was quite an interesting illustration of the way disunity, isolation might outwork itself in the modern world. Can we get the next slide? This is a quote from... Dickens, Christmas Carol. Uh, this is Scrooge's nephew talking about Christmas. He said, I've always thought of Christmas time as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time when men and women seem by one consent to open up their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave. And here's the kicker and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. In other words, the normal status quo, default setting of Dickens's world, that would be Victorian England, uh, was that typically men and women did not think of each other in commonality. They thought of each other as individuals, not bound on the same destination. And Christmas time, Scrooge's nephew argues, it is a time when we remember that there is a commonality between us. We are bound together and we are connected. And here's just a picture from uh, an American painter called Hopper. Just, I'm going to do my best to do a bit of art, art stuff here. Bear with me. The perspective's interesting, isn't it? It's from the outside in. We're outside the shop, not inside it. And inside, if you could see closely, people are turned at angles from each other and they're all set about their own tasks. Topper was known for trying to capture the loneliness at the heart of modern America and, 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 and the idea that actually, even though America was glutted with wealth and provisions and riches beyond any other civilization ever's wildest imaginations, there was a profound loneliness at the heart of America. Let's bring this closer to home. Three years ago, 5% of adults in this country in England reported often feeling lonely, isolated or disconnected. A year ago, this rose to over 20%, prompting some to call it an epidemic of loneliness and for the government to create a minister for loneliness. She was called Baroness Barron. In Islington, let's bring it even closer, we rank fifth highest in London and eighth nationally for risk of loneliness in people aged 65 and over. And loneliness was identified as a top priority need in, in a survey of Tollington Ward, which is what we are part of here especially for over 50s. That was a, from a 2018 survey. Can I get the next slide? Brilliant. This is a quote from Baroness Barron, said minister for loneliness. She said, loneliness leads to the erosion of society. Extended families have dissolved and social institutions like churches have frayed. We are no longer so deeply embedded in our communities. And if we can get the next slide, just a quote from the late great uh, chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs in a book he wrote in 2004 called The Dignity of Difference and he said this society depends on the existence of certain relationships that stand outside economic calculation like families communities congregations and voluntary associations 
These are the institutions of civil society, and they have become seriously eroded in consumption-driven cultures. So, what am I trying to say? Ephesians is good news, all right? In Jesus, things are being brought together. If you are connected to the church, you are being bound together with other people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, into a unity which Jesus is holding. It is profoundly good news. In Ephesians 4, chapter 4, you might want to flick to that. 4, chapter 4, we are told, Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as there is one hope held out in God's call to you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. In all. What's the most important word in that bit? Test, hands up, or just shout it out. One, obviously, the oneness, the unity, the profound solidarity that we find in Jesus Christ is something that you and I are now connected to in the church and we should be rejoicing in a world of fragmentation, in a world that pulls itself apart, in a world where people are living desperately isolated and disconnected lives. We carry in the church the hope of Jesus Christ and the hope of Jesus Christ, among all sorts of other things, is one of unity, solidarity, connectivity, And that should give us profound cause for celebration. Just as an example, last night I came to the gospel choir. Many of you would have been there. If you weren't, you missed out. It was phenomenal. There was this song that they sung called Let Praises Rise, which I'd never heard of, by a singer called Trey McLaughlin, which I'd never heard of. So again, apologies if you're a Trey McLaughlin fan, but I've never heard of him. I'm now a huge fan. I've been YouTubing and, and playing on my Apple Music Trey McLaughlin song. He's amazing. Highly recommend. But as they were singing, I realized that I wasn't just observing the gospel choir. I wasn't just someone sitting there thinking, this is a nice evening. I was being profoundly ministered to in the power of the Holy Spirit through this song. I don't, that's fine, I'm, I'm, I'm a big guy, I can admit it. I shed a tear or two or many. I was weeping. Something in the depths of my spirit was being healed, uh, like oil or, or balm or cool water. That's what the spirit does. One of the many beautiful things that the spirit does, that the spirit is a healing spirit. Here are the words from the song. Uh, they said, let praises rise on the inside of me. Come fill my life from the inside of me. Set me on fire from the inside of me. I, was, I am connected. I am not disconnected. We are connected in Jesus Christ. So that When you come to an evening like the Gospel Choir, our expectation shouldn't be that we sit there observing what's going on, but that we should have a profound sense of expectation that because Jesus is unifying all things, including you and me, the Holy Spirit will be ministering to us through the Spirit of God, through each other. We rejoice with those who rejoice. I'll tell you another funny thing. I was watching the rugby over the weekend. Many of the all-black rugby players like to do this thing. In fact, the South Africans do it too. They wrap tape around their wrists and they draw the cross of Jesus Christ on it and they put their favorite verse on it. Such is the power of my connectivity to them through Jesus Christ, that we are brothers in Christ, that I find myself sometimes wishing and hoping that they would do well against England or Wales, or Ireland. There there genuinely is, it's a funny moment, there genuinely is a solidarity or a connectivity I feel with someone when they are proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the public sphere because we're bound together in Jesus Christ. We don't just rejoice with those who rejoice. We hurt with those who hurt. We've been praying for our dear and beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, the Cox family at this time. And we will continue to contend for them as a community. And it shouldn't be that we are indifferent to other people's sufferings or hurts or struggles or challenges in this church family, but that we bear with each other. 
that we should feel a weight of, of, of grief or mourning or, or the challenge or the difficulties that we're going through. If we're not feeling it, we've got some questions to ask about the activity of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our midst. If we are literally just going about our own journeys day to day, like Scrooge's nephew says most people in Victorian England did, or like Alexis de Tocqueville described modern America, then we are missing something fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. On the stained glass window, over there, I can't quote it. In fact, I will go, just quickly, because we can have fun like that. It says this, this stained glass window, and I said this a couple of times before, it says, erected by Stuart George, in mem- Stuart George and Susanna Florence Dallas, in memory of their beloved child, Winifred Rose, born 23rd March 1897, died 16th January 1898, barely a year old. Winifred Rose has died. Now that's 120, 130 years ago. But we're bound together, not just with those of us who are in the room, but with the great cloud of witnesses. In Hebrews 12, 1, it says, there is a great cloud of witnesses. That is other Christians, people who've known Jesus, who've gone before us, who are no longer walking the face of the earth, but we are connected to through Jesus Christ. And even more than that, there is a great future uh, relationship that we have with those who aren't yet born. Psalm 139 says, my life was fashioned before it had come into being your life was fashioned before you came into being you are found in the depths of God's love first and last and you will be remembered beyond the grave the great zoom out big meta message of Ephesians and one that we need to lay hold of if we're going to survive any chance of being salt and light and being the kingdom of God and being the church in this profoundly lonely and disconnected generation is that in Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, the universe, everything in heaven and earth is going to be brought into a unity and indeed has been brought into a unity with Jesus. If you are feeling isolated, find Jesus. If you are feeling disconnected, find Jesus. It's one of the most important things we can do that. We do that through prayer, silence, contention, worship, fellowship, coming to church, singing praises in the shower, getting on our knees before bedtime, welcoming the Spirit of God in the nighttime. Wherever Jesus is, we are connected to the body of Christ, the church. And that is a gift and we shouldn't take it lightly. Now I'm going to zoom in on Ephesians chapter 5, the chapter that Lewis so beautifully read. One of the ways that we think about the activity of Jesus Christ that Paul is uh, experimenting or he's thinking about in chapter 5 is as a new family. In chapter 5 verse 1, read with me, in a word, as God's dear children, you must be like him. We are described by Paul as God's children. In other words, Jesus is creating a new family with himself at the head. So chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians unpack the kinds of behaviors, attitudes uh, that you should have if you're a member of Jesus' family because it's unique and quirky and eccentric like anybody's family. When I married Anna, in fact, when we were engaged, Anna came over to our house and she realized it was Christmas Eve that me, my brother, and my sister, every single Christmas Eve, sleep in the same room. I was 29 at the time. (laughs) And 
being the amazingly gracious woman that she is, she barely raised an eyebrow, but I could tell she thought it was weird, which was wrong because we're normal, right? Everyone else is weird. What we do in our family is completely normal. That's a joke. Um, you, I'm sure we'll have lots of things that you do in your family that are very, very strange. Um, but there you go. We are bound together in Christ, and I want to let you know this, into a new family. Your primary identity, your primary identity is in Jesus Christ. Can I just say something here? That does not mean that your individual, idiosyncratic, quirky Eunice, your family, for me, my Seymourness, my surname is Seymour, my Seymourness dissipates or disappears as a Christian. In, if anything, it gets more Seymourness. And many people might say, that's disappointing. But I become more Matt in the church of God, in Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, not less Matt. Mumford and Sons says, love, it will not betray, enslave, or dismay you, but it will set you free to become more the man or woman you were meant to be. As we give ourselves in worship adoration uh, of Jesus Christ, we will find our own selves hidden in him. We will become more ourselves than any before. But the paradox is you have to give yourself away to find yourself because you don't ultimately know who you are. Don't look within Kung Fu Panda. Don't take the wisdom of the world that says look within. Look without at Jesus and you will discover a profound identity within so there are a few characteristics and we're just going to run through them. Here's some practical advice that Paul has for you and for me as we learn to live together in this weird and wonderful new family of Jesus Christ. Don't poke the bear is Paul's first advice. Chapter 438, if you're angry, don't be led into sin. Don't let sunset go down on your anger. Give no foothold to the devil. He's not packing a punch. Paul understands that anger is like a fire. And if you stoke the fire, it just gets bigger. In Genesis chapter 3, 4, verse 6. Um, sorry, no, that's wrong. Sorry. In Genesis chapter 4, 36. 4, 6. Sorry, I'm getting totally confused. In Genesis 4, 6, it doesn't really matter. No one's flicking. No one knows. You don't know, do you? I can just make it up right now. Um, I'm joking. That was a little dig. Oh, that was a bit passive aggressive. Bear with me. Don't get too angry. Genesis chapter six. Uh, God says to Cain, who's thinking about murdering his brother Abel because he's really angry with him. Abel, I want to tell you something. Anger is crouching at the door of your heart. And it's like a lion or the devil. Different translations, different of the Hebrew, different things. But it's like, a, it's like a wild animal. And I want to let you know that you've allowed anger to come up to the door of your heart. And I want to let you know that if you let anger in, it will master you. You will no longer be able to decide your actions. And what follows is that Cain does let anger in. He stokes it and waters his grievances against his brother to the point where he invites him out to a field and stones him to death. Don't poke the bear. If you're angry, deal with it. Forgive someone. Go to the Lord with it. But for goodness sake, don't poke the flipping bear. Second bit of advice, cultivate humility and gentleness and patience. Notice how Paul is deeply realistic. We are not by nature humble. At least I'm not. We are not by nature gentle. And we are not by nature patient. Now, I know we all know people who are humble, patient, and gentleness, and they carry something. But, but history, if humanity tells a story that we are not any of those things, we need to actively and intentionally and consciously cultivate these beautiful things in the family of God. Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 3, Be humble always and gentle and patient too, putting up with one another's 
failings in the spirit of love. Can we just get some grace in this community, some humility? There but for the grace of God go I. We're going to bear with each other's failings. Next bit of advice, be honest, tell the truth. Chapter 428, give up stealing and work hard with your hands. Decent advice. If you are going to be the new family of Jesus Christ, really good to tell the truth, really good not to steal things from each other, really good to be humble and kind and patient and not a bad idea to deal with your anger instead of screaming at someone in the face. These are just like really helpful tips to live together in the family of God. Watch your greed, 5-3. Greed is ruthless and it will express itself ruthlessly in a community. Mind your tongue, Chapter 5, verse 4, avoid coarse, stupid, flippant talk. These things are out of place. What would it be like if as a community, and I say this to myself as much as anything else, I'm loving that Ira is giving his mum mum a run for her money around the church. It's extraordinary to see. Bless you. Heather, you've got your work cut out. It's amazing. You're never catching him. He's off. He's got a life to lead. He's got places to be, things to achieve. Um, Bless Heather and Ira. May they be full of the spirit. We love those guys so much. Um, uh, mind your tongue. Wouldn't it be amazing if we just spoke highly of each other? Even, not not um, superficially, not lying, but can we think of ways that we might actually encourage and build each other up, not just to each other's faces, but behind each other's backs? And that we don't do that thing that Christians love to do, which is gossiping through prayer. Lord Jesus, I heard this terrible thing about Marjorie the other day. We just... Pray for her soul, Lord. She can be so difficult. I'm joking. We, let's not do that. Let's mind our tongues. Let's be encouraging. Um, don't be a gullible fool. Paul doesn't say it like that. That's what he's saying, effectively. Chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with shallow arguments. Have nothing to do with them. Don't go down conspiracy theories on YouTube and dark holes. It is all around us. Grow up. I am now getting angry. I need to deal with it. But can we grow up? No, Anna's like, settle down. Sorry, this sometimes happens. I'm really sorry. I need to grow up. Um, but let's not be gullible fools. Let's lay hold of the truth. We'll do that by looking to Jesus Christ and reading scripture. And lastly, learn some wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 10. Learn to judge for yourselves what it, what it means to be pleasing to the Lord. Okay. Esau, in Genesis chapter 25, verse, two, verse, 20, chapter 25, verse 32. Esau sells the covenant blessing of God for a pot of stew. That's not wisdom, that's foolishness. Let's be a community that realizes what we hold. We hold a gift of God. The Holy Spirit fills us, and one of the jobs the Holy Spirit does is to open up our eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ. And it's very, very easy to forget that in all the hurly-burly of the world around us. But we hold in in our hands, Jesus has given it to us, the covenant promise of God. Let's not sell it for a pot of stew, let's not cheapen it. Okay, but the second picture, and I'm going to come into land as quickly as possible, is marriage. Paul talks about that, you'll have heard it, in chapter 5. In chapter 5, 32, Paul says, There is hidden here a great mystery which I take to refer to Christ and the church. I want you to know that Paul isn't primarily talking about marriage here. He's talking about Christ and the church. If you are in a good married good marriage, brilliant. If you're in a difficult marriage, bless you. If you have been disappointed in marriage, if you long for marriage, if you never want to get married, all of the above... It's for everyone. This isn't primarily about marriage. This is about Christ's relationship to the church. Paul is talking about marriage as a way into thinking about the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. Marriage is a key picture or image that the Bible gives us to think about the relationship of Christ and the church. The Bible is bookended in marriage. It begins in marriage and it ends with the marriage supper of the lamb. 
One of the ways that we're encouraged to think of Israel's relationship with God is as a husband and wife. And the first miracle that Jesus performed is at a marriage, at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Marriage is a profoundly uh, important way of thinking into uh, the nature of Christ's relationship with the church. So here are a couple principles from marriage that I think Paul wants to encourage us to think about this morning. First up, be single-hearted in your devotion and your commitment to Jesus. Be utterly single-hearted. Ephesians 5.3, fornication, that's sleeping outside of marriage, and indecency of any kind mustn't be so much as mentioned among you. Don't sleep around. I don't think that's profound wisdom. If, if you met a married couple and they were sleeping around, you probably, I'm guessing, I'm not assuming because we live in uh, times when these things are being questioned and probed, but you probably would say, I'm not sure that's in accordance with the principles and the patterns of, of married relationship. You probably shouldn't sleep around if you're married to someone. And what Paul is really saying here is in the same way, if you think that you can worship Jesus and other gods, you are kidding yourself. David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, Mark, I wonder if you'd get that, it'd be amazing. Yeah, David Foster Wallace, who wasn't a Christian, said this to a bunch of American grads in 2008, and I'm gonna read the whole thing to you. He said, there's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing Jesus Christ is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Don't sleep around. Don't worship other gods. Don't find your satisfaction in things which ultimately will eat you alive. They cannot satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Only Jesus Christ can wake up, grow up, and worship him alone. Here's the rest of the quote. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. So first principle, be single-hearted in our devotion for Jesus and don't give up the number one slot to anything else. Money, sex, power is a good place to start examining our hearts. Where is our money going? How are we spending our time? What am I daydreaming about? When I'm feeling oppressed, afraid, insecure, where do I go for comfort? For me, oftentimes it's the fridge. And I say that lightheartedly, but it's genuine. Or, Or it's BBC News, it's a news feed. I say that, that is a genuine point of contention in my life. And I want to grow as someone who goes to the scriptures, who flees into the name of Jesus, which is a strong tower and a mighty fortress. I'm trying to cultivate that kind of attitude, that worship for Jesus Christ and not worship other gods. Second thing is we submit to each other, as Paul says, wives and husbands are supposed to submit to each other in reverence and awe and love. And if you both submit to each other and you both say, I'm going to go to the mat for you, you are my top priority. I'm going to do everything I can to make you flourish, to enable you to live your best life. Uh, I'm going to serve you. Then we have a chance of being the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ. 
Here are the marriage vows. When people get married, they say this in the Anglican Church. I'm committing to have you and hold you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It says don't undertake vows like that lightly or soberly. You are entering into a covenant, legally binding commitment with another person and your job is to make them look great. And Paul wants to say that is a picture of the new family. That is the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ is the groom, we are the bride, and our job is to make him look great as he has made us look great. In Philippians chapter 2, I wonder if we get that quote up, Mark, that'd be brilliant. It says, Jesus was in the form of God, yet he laid no claim to equality with God, but he made himself nothing. I'm not going to carry on. It's an amazing quote. Jesus made himself nothing who had everything, so that we who had nothing have everything. Jesus made himself nothing who had everything so that you and I who have nothing are given everything. And Jesus wants to say to us, do for me and for each other and for the world I call you to serve that which I've already done for you. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, here's what love looks like. It's not a feeling. It's not a romantic idea. It's a verb. It's a doing word. You wash each other's feet. I will wash your feet and I want you to learn to wash each other's feet. And by the way, at that table that night, Judas was present, who Jesus knew would betray him. And even in that moment, he washes his enemy's feet. He washes the one who is to betray him in love. Chapter five, verses one and two. Here's how we might sum it up. In a word... As God's dear children, be like him. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up on your behalf. I wonder if we might stand so we can just pray before we come and gather around the table to share in the life of Jesus Christ, which he's given us as his gift. Lord, the words that weren't from you, that were from me, I pray would fall away. But if anything of you has landed in our hearts, I pray you'd water it by your spirit and grow it as a harvest of righteousness and life in our lives. We thank you for your word. There's a lot there. But I pray that the one thing that we need to hear would settle like a seed on good soil and we would guard it and nurture it and bless it today. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we just ask that you'd fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Where we have metaphorically or literally been getting drunk on wine, that is finding our security, our joy in anything outside of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Forgive us. Fill us with your spirit that we might lay hold of what it means to be the new family of God. And that we might experience the profound blessing of being bound together, connected to each other because we're connected to you. Amen.